Well, good morning, church family. We were going to be starting a new series in the book of Job, but because of a number of things, when I started thinking about how long it would take to discuss several items, we just decided to push the book of Job back and talk about what we're going to talk about today. And what I'd like to do is briefly talk about how the church is doing, our missions and ministries. Uh, Second, I want to talk about um, our continuing plans and discussions to reopen and what that looks like. And then third, I'd like to address what's going on in our country right now. So first, first up, mission and ministry. Good news. Because of the faithfulness of this church, the faithfulness of this congregation, because of the prayers and the support of, of everybody, we have not had to cut a single missions program, a single missionary, a single project globally, locally, not a cut to the orphanage, to Tanzania, hope of the nations, to our support in Nigeria. None of that has taken a hit. Additionally, tons of people, as you know, are hurting in our local community, barely making it. So we've been able to help significantly. So because of the faithfulness of the people in this congregation, we're doing significant work overseas and locally, even in the midst of this global pandemic. I do want you to be aware, though, that people are hurting. I mean, people are hurting immensely right now. Um, the shelter in place, it, it, it took its toll and it's continuing to take its toll. Um, I'm almost at a point where if my phone rings or if I get a text or an email, I, I feel like a little anxiousness because I don't want to hear more bad news of someone suffering, someone hurting. Um, and so we ask you to continue to pray for us. We need your prayers. The pastoral team, I, we need your prayers. It's been a very difficult time to pastor in, um, and it's completely unprecedented. No one, no one went to school to learn how to, to minister in times like this. So please, please continue to pray for us. I'd also like to talk about our hopes to reopen. As you can tell, we are getting closer. Things are opening up. Uh, we sort of feel it, and so we are working hard. We got meetings set up to say, what would it look like to open up once we get the green light? Now, part of the confusion with this is everyone just reads the headlines, and there will be a headline. President Trump says churches are essential, but you got to know that that then goes to the state. And then Governor Newsom says, okay, how are we going to make churches essential? Well, we'll try to open them up, but we're going to give them guidelines. But then the state pushes it down to the county to decide on what the guidelines for reopening then look like. And the, there's, there's good and bad news with that. One, for the Hollister campus, San Benito County is way ahead. They're like way ahead in California. Santa Clara County, Gilroy campus, we have some of the more strict rules in all of the state. However, Governor Newsom just made an announcement Friday about pushing the state forward into phase three. And so we're waiting. Typically, it's the following week on Friday where the county gives new guidelines. So succinctly said, we are patiently waiting for the, the new guidelines, what those look like, and then we'll continue to make decisions on what's the best way to go about regathering, what's, what's in the best interest for the safety of our people, what's in the best interest for actually having a service that feels like church. Um, and so if you didn't hear my message a couple weeks back on an equation to reopen, everything in there 
still applies. Um, we're wrestling with all those different issues. So if you didn't hear that, you can go back and listen. But we are getting close, I hope. I hope it feels like we're getting close to reopening. Okay, and then thirdly, since everyone in the country right now seems to be talking about race and racial tension and racism, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to do so as well. And I want to do so because I believe the church should have a distinct and powerful voice for our culture. And I believe our church, the church, should have a distinct and powerful voice because I believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that the gospel should inform every component and sector of our lives. And so we at this church say we're gospel-centered, gospel-centered. And if you've been coming here for a long time, you know that we typically try to end every sermon, every message by bringing whatever we just talked about back to the gospel. So it's sort of like a a one-trick pony. You know the answer always at the end of every sermon is the gospel. So I'm not just saying, oh, the gospel's for this, it's, it's the solution for our present moment. No, I believe the gospel is the solution to every problem we encounter. It goes back to the person and work of Jesus. And so we say that the gospel functions as a lens by which we see the world through. So think about a pair of sunglasses. If you put on a pair of sunglasses with a yellow lens, everything you see is filtered through those yellow lens. You see yellow. Likewise, you put the gospel over your eyes and you see the world through that lens. Now, I believe much of the problems in our culture, in our country, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, today, yesterday, are rooted in Americans, American Christians having a very small understanding of the gospel. The gospel is tiny. It is not thick and robust and life-giving. It's not a gospel that informs every sector of our lives. One of the first sermons I gave when I stepped into the role of lead pastor at this church was talking about how small our gospel is. How it doesn't inform all areas of our lives. And when we, we fail to do so, the culture reaps the consequences. So today, what I'd like to do is talk about how the gospel informs all of our theology. Now, briefly, theology is the study of God, what you think about God. So everyone, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, is a theologian because we all have thoughts about God. Christian theology has different sectors, Think of a department store. There's one department store. It's hard to think about that. When was the last time you were in a department store? But in a department store, there's the men's section, the women's section, there's the technology section, there's uh, the sports sports section, there's the, the place where there's a bunch of bikes, and you have all these different sections in the department store. Christian theology, likewise, has different sections. And there's big words to refer to the different sections of the theology. Eschatology, eschatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, homartology. It's a lot of teleologies there, man. It's difficult. But 
what we need to do as Christians is say, how does the gospel inform each of these areas and what happens when it does so? So today, briefly, briefly, I want to look at how the gospel informs our ecclesiology, our anthropology, and our soteriology. Now, those are three giant words, but briefly, ecclesiology is the study of the church. What do we think the church is? Anthropology, what do we think about human beings? And then soteriology is the study of salvation. What do we think about salvation? So all I want to do is apply a gospel lens to those three areas and show you how the answer always comes back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, first off, ecclesiology, the study of the church. What do we think about the church? So question, what is the church? What is the church? The church is the people of God. And who are the people of God? The people of God are the blood-bought family of God composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is the blood-bought family What's the family composed of? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Embedded in our gospel is the message and story of God's great love for all people. And when our gospel doesn't inform everything, including ecclesiology, we can get a tiny gospel. And I'll give you an example of how simple this can be. I have children. And if you, if you have children and you're a Christian, you've probably told them about God's love in the gospel. And you might have told them that the gospel is the truth that Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins so that you can go to heaven and live with him when you die. And that's absolutely true. Now take no issue with that, okay? The gospel is about Christ's death. So we teach them what they're saved from, Satan, sin, and death. But if we let the gospel inform our ecclesiology, we don't just teach our children what they're saved from, we also teach them what they're saved into. And what are you saved into? The blood-bought family composed of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we have to teach our children, we have to disciple our children and disciple our hearts that God delights in the nations God loves all people. God saw fit before time began to draw a people of diverse backgrounds and colors and bring them to himself and having new family. That, that is embedded in the message of the gospel. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. So God died for you, and he also died, you, died for you to get you into his family. And so when we're training and discipling our children from early ages, every tribe, tongue, and nation, God delights in the salvation of the nations. We train our children. They grow up. And if they see or sense racism, they they intuitively, they already know that that that's not what their gospel is about. That's not what their gospel is about. They intuitively know. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's how our story ends with the blood-bought family of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, if you've been coming to the church for a while, I hope you know that we are always trying to tell this story of God. Um, Pastor Sam and I joke around because it's like, we do it so much. We do it so much. And some of you aren't going to know what I'm talking about. And some of you are going to go, yep, we, we know it. But even when we're talking about, say, someone like Abraham, we don't even just mention Abraham lightly. We say, you know that when God starts his mission on earth, he chooses Abraham so that he could be a blessing to all the nations. The plan from the beginning, from Genesis 12, was blessing of all the nations. And we want to hammer the story of the Bible into our heads because that's what informs us. And so we have no room for racism for gospel reasons. We don't need the world out there to give us reasons. We have gospel reasons first and foremost that the story of God from beginning to end is about the salvation of the nations. So we have gospel reasons for doing so. And this leads me to the next point where the gospel needs to inform our theology. It's the next store of the next part of the department store, anthropology. Anthropology deals with the study of humans. So what do we think about humanity? Many of us watched the video of the horrific killing of George Floyd. It's horrific. Um, And if you ask... You, you ask me, though, am I shocked? No, because my anthropology, my anthropology says human beings are prone to evil, we're prone to wickedness, we're prone to sin. Our feet are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And so when I look at the world through a gospel lens, I am not surprised when I see evil. It gets even worse than that. I'm not only not surprised when I see evil, I immediately start to look to to see how evil is going to take advantage of a situation. Whenever there's tragedy, watch it. The vultures will come in and everyone will try to take or hijack the pain of this man, his family, and the African-American community and try to have that flip and fit their narrative or their agenda. And right now it's like everyone, everyone is jumping on it and has, has this opinion on this and this opinion on that and that opinion on that. And it's fine to have opinions, but you have to watch. You have to watch because my anthropology says that human beings will hijack other people's pain and use it for their advantage. And it goes even further than that. Right now we're seeing a, a collective cry of people saying racism is wrong and it is good 
for a society to say racism is wrong. This is a good thing. It is a good thing. But my anthropology, my theology about human nature and the sinfulness of man says, be careful. Be careful for this reason. It's really quick for people to decry racism, but get around confronting the evil that lies in our own heart. And let let me explain what I mean. Let, Let me explain what I mean. A while back, um, it became really trendy when there was a tragedy, say there was a terrorist attack in France. Um, what, what, what do we do? What do we do? Um, we change our profile pic to a picture of the Eiffel Tower and we say like praying for France or something like that. And there's, there's nothing wrong. I have to preface this because like half the church is already feeling offended because I know half of you, you guys do that. There's nothing wrong with changing your profile pic to say thoughts and prayers, or I'm praying for for this tragedy. But, how many people who posted they were praying for France actually stopped and prayed for them? And how many people maybe started to pray, but bing, notification, oh, Johnny liked my, my, my post about France. As Christians, when there's suffering and evil, we are called to be broken and cry out to the Lord over these things. But what we've done is we've created really easy things for us to do to demonstrate and demonstrate to the world of social media that we're on the team of good guys. We get it. We condemned terrorism. I condemn it and I'm going to make a post about it. And again, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with this stuff, but be careful. Because when a culture is filled with people who lack true virtue, who lack true moral backbone and fortitude, that culture will also simultaneously create individuals that create little easy things that they could do to appear virtuous and convince themselves that they're on the good guy side. And they're going to project it to the world. Because let me tell you, It's a lot easier to do that than confront the evil in your own heart. And my anthropology says that human beings, we're we're prone to this wickedness. And so it's not just as easy as making a statement. You got to do the hard work and look in your heart. The other thing I'm concerned about is that I see a generation of people being brought up who always think the evil is out there. And trust me, there's a lot of evil out there. But the gospel informs my anthropology and also tell me the evil is out there, yes, because the evil is also, it's in here. It's in the human heart. And so I'm very concerned that we create people who just always think it's out there without doing the hard work of looking at their heart. It's far easier to be a social media activist than it is to confront the evil lurking in your own heart. That's difficult work. The Bible says in Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within 
and they defile a person. We have a generation who thinks everything in their heart is good and perfect and whatever bad things they ever do, well, that's because someone else is responsible for it. It's gotta be someone else's fault. And Jesus and the gospel says, Christ had to die for human sin. It's not just out there, man. It's in us, it's in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So as a Christian, you have to understand the Bible says human depravity, it's big time. We're prone to wickedness. We are prone to evil. We are prone to hate. We're prone to divide. And so the Christian, if they have a theologically sound anthropology, they're always checking their heart. Lord, before I go and fix the world, before I go try to solve this problem, how's my heart, Lord? And that applies to stuff that's going on in this country today. It applied to stuff going on last week, the week before, and it'll apply going next week. The Christian is always examining their heart. Lord, create in me a clean heart heart. Lord, I want to have a clean heart. Which leads to the final area of the department store. First, ecclesiology, the study of the church. Then anthropology, study of human beings. Lastly, soteriology. Soter is the Greek word for healing or salvation. Sozo is the verb. It means to save or to heal. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. What did I contribute to my salvation? Nothing. The only thing I contributed to my salvation was my sin. That's what I took to the bank. My wickedness, my wicked heart. That's what I gave Christ, and he gave me forgiveness. Therefore, there is no room to boast. I can't look down upon anybody. I don't get to. I don't have that option. Because the cross evens the playing field. Christ had to die for all of his family, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is not an option for a Christian to look down upon others. Central to the gospel is the message that we were dead in our sins. And from heaven, he sought us and he adopted people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to make his one worldwide family. And it's neither Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male, female. They're all brought in and we're called to be one. One. So if you understand the gospel, you know there's no room for racism. And I have gospel reasons for believing that. I have gospel reasons for believing that. The whole story of the Bible is is a message of that. And so in the church world, God calls this diverse body to come together. And he says, this is the gospel. And there are certain things that we have to agree on. There are certain things that we have to agree on. We call them essential. We call them essential business. It's like who Jesus is. We don't get to disagree on that in the church. He's the son of the living God. He died on the cross. 
The gospel tells us every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we don't get to disagree on that. Racism is always wrong for the Christian. Now, we may disagree on the exact methods on how to combat it and what we ought to do. And believe me, I know not everyone agrees on how to go about in the world because all you have to do is go on social media. It's like, just three weeks ago, everyone was a medical expert and now everyone changed professions and they're expert on other things. The church, listen to me on this, is united on the, with the gospel. And we could have differences of opinions on strategies and methods on what we ought to do. But we can't disagree on the essentials. We have to then model to the world what the family of God looks like. The church has to be united because the world is not united. The world is divided. And it just didn't happen this week. The world is divided, but God has put his church, his family, to demonstrate and to model to the entire world what unity and diversity can look like. And so how we behave in the church, how we love each other, how we're forgiving to one another, that should be the example the world looks to. The church should be able to say, well, you guys got a lot of difference of opinions on that and you just seem to cancel each other. It's cancel culture. Anytime someone has an opinion that's different of you, you cancel them and write them off. You're not their friend. Oh, the church should be, come look at us. We, we know how to do this. Oh yeah, we don't agree on everything. We got our issues. But we're united because of the gospel. And we model to the world what that unity looks like. So where do we go from here? Three things. One, we have to continue to pound gospel centrality into our hearts, into our minds, daily, weekly, yearly. We have to lead with the gospel. The gospel needs to inform all sectors of theology. It's like the department store. The gospel informs this section and this section, ecclesiology, anthropology, soteriology, eschatology. And when the gospel does that, we raise up mature Christian disciples who have gospel reasons for confronting evil in the world. And so we have to continue to develop that. Second thing, I want to talk about our witness. Our witness. The church has a tremendous opportunity because right now, people are uniting and saying racism is wrong. And, and thank God when a society comes to that. that. That shouldn't be taken for granted. The history of humanity is us killing each other. And so when the world starts saying things like that, Christians have an immense opportunity. Because a Christian can say, why do you think racism is wrong? Because the secular narrative is that the material world is all that exists. The material world is all that there is. We're just atoms and neurons and hormones and chemicals. There's no soul. There's nothing transcendent. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no spiritual reality. So when someone says all people should be treated equal, the Christian says, what moral ground do you stand upon to make that claim? And we tell people in the church, 
we got the story, man. The reason why racism is wrong is because all people are made in the image of God. That's how our story begins. How does our story end? The worldwide blood-bought family of God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's where our story begins and where our story ends. This is why it's wrong. This is why it's wrong because all people bear the image of the living God. So we have a tremendous opportunity to strategically bear witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Materialism, a world without God, cannot make those claims and have a moral ground to stand upon. They're using Christian morality. And so we can politely ask those questions and say, it's actually the Bible that grounds so much of this. Third, people are saying, okay, what are are some real practical steps? And Here's one simple one that very few people are talking about. And again, most of this stuff, just like in the equation to reopen, the equation to reopen couldn't just be applied to that one scenario. It applies to lots of things. And and this one, one simple step could be applied to tons of things. A lot of people, when something bad happens in the the country, um, they get really riled up about it when we do that four-year ritual that we do as Americans where we elect a new president. And so Americans get really hyped. We get really excited and get really into it when it's the presidential elections, okay? However, a lot of stuff that's wrong, a lot of stuff that's sinful, a lot of stuff that just creeps in, it comes in at the local level. And so Christians ought to be voting in godly leaders at the local level. And so sometimes we just wait for the hype of the presidential election and everyone gets excited about that. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. Every four years, that's, it consumes the culture. All the while, so much, of, so much is taking place down here. And so Christians have let a lot of stuff sneak in because we're not paying attention to our local leaders. And so you need to be smart and wise and be looking out for this stuff. I believe Christians have the greatest story ever told. The story begins with God creating image bearers. Image bearers. And the story ends with the blood-bought, diverse family of God. We need to be proclaiming that message more than ever. And we need to model to the world what the gospel of Jesus looks like. Christians, we follow the Prince of Peace. We have to show, we have to demonstrate to the world the ways of the Prince of Peace. So we don't promote or engage in violence. We don't practice eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We follow the Prince of Peace. We follow his lead and we model to the world what peace and reconciliation can look like. the last thing we have to be aware of is the spiritual component. The spiritual component to this all. People are turning against each other and we're, we're down each other's necks. There's a lot of fighting going on. And it's interesting because not everybody, but the majority, the majority of Americans are are for once sort of kind of coming on the same page. 
like the majority of Americans are condemning what's happened. And the majority of Americans also want to see bad police officers held accountable. And the majority of Americans want to support all, all the many good police officers. We're kind of, you know, there might, there, there's differences and variants, but, we're, but in the middle of that, there's just being fuel, fuel to the fire, fuel to the fire. And someone says this, and someone says they meant this, and someone, there is satanic work going on. The spiritual powers and principalities that are opposed to the kingdom of God enjoy destroying God's good creation. They don't want human beings to flourish. They want this world to burn. And so Christian, know the gospel. Disciple your kids. Be praying. Care about what's going on. Confront evil. And know you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual war. So as I close... I want to read from the ending of our story. Revelation. Twenty one. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, his gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring glory and honor of all the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on each side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall no longer be anything cursed and the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his bond servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads our story ends with the healing of the nations. And so Christians, we are called now in the present to be people who reconcile. And you are living in times where you have to be wise and discerning because everyone's trying to divide. And so may you walk on the path of peace following your king who is the prince of peace. Let's stand as we read and recite the Lord's Prayer. Hey, church family, coming to you from the Milners. Please join us in saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 